Hello, I'm Mike Hall, Assistant Minister of this church, and it's my privilege to speak on this rather interesting, rather short passage from John's first letter. I thought where I'd begin was um, referring to the... Hang on a minute. Wardrobe malfunction. Referring to the age of um, social media, which we know all about, don't we? And there are harsh lessons in the age of social media for those who don't know their audience very well. In Facebook, for example, I'm probably friends with about 50% of the people sitting here, um, every time we post a bit of information about ourselves, photo photos of an evening with friends and family, a political message, something uplifting, we are entitled to decide who sees it. It's important to realize that. That may be all of our list of friends or contacts, specific people only, a group like Claygate Church Friends, or we can just keep that information to ourselves. Not a bad idea. Or we can let anyone at all see it. Anyone who is in Facebook anywhere or anyone looking in on Facebook from the internet. And that is a lot of people. It was a harsh lesson for a Harpenden and Hertfordshire teenager a few years back. Rebecca, who mistakenly posted her address and the date of her 15th birthday party on Facebook. And then showed it mistakenly, but in effectively... She shared it with the whole world. Mum Tracy, you see, had given Rebecca permission to invite up to 15 friends round to their house on a Saturday evening. And within a day, as you can imagine, over 21,000 strangers had sent an RSVP to Rebecca accepting her invitation. Not surprisingly, Tracy, her mum, cancelled the party and police were alerted the sleepy police of Harpenden, uh, fearing thousands could descend on their lovely town. In the event peace reigned, Rebecca learned an important lesson, that one of the first things you need to know about communication is to understand your audience. Now, there's little doubt that the Apostle John, whom we surely take to be the writer of the three letters that appear at the end of the New Testament, knew his audience, and we take that audience to be in Ephesus. I mean, he'd lived amongst those people, probably for up to 15 years, at an unusually great age. And he knew the melting pot that existed in that city, things like paganism, huge material wealth for some, superstition, immorality, sorcery, were all around as features of the moral landscape. He knew that Christians in the city, 50 years after Jesus' ascension, were under massive pressure. Pressure to adopt a special knowledge, gnosis, and a lifestyle which claimed to be the truth, yet John held to be no more than lies. Lies about things like the humanity and divinity of Jesus. Lies about whether or not Jesus' resurrection really did save humankind from sin, and lies about whether God 
was, after all, the creator of the material world. So John saw it as absolutely essential in that place at that time to reinforce the core Christian understanding of those things to his audience. Now, of course, John was no ordinary letter writer. I don't know about you, but whether I read a letter or not depends hugely on who it's from. And when John wrote those letters, he did so as the last remaining link with the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last apostle, the last eyewitness. So he knew that when he spoke, people were likely to listen. And when John wrote this letter, which we now know as 1 John, there is no formal addressing like there are in some of Paul's letters with a statement addressed to the church at Ephesus. Nothing like that. And John would have no concept that his letter might be read by people like you and I 2,000 years later in the southeast of an island that he didn't know existed. But like Rebecca's invitation, his letters have gone viral. The party hasn't been cancelled. The pressures on our faith come from different places these days. But we're free to interpret, understand, act on it, and pass on his message. Why? Because the truths haven't changed. And because John is still the greatest latter-day eyewitness. Now, you might have noticed as you were listening to Clive read the passage just now that John kind of addresses three groups in that letter. Funny titles, actually, some of them. Little children, fathers, young men. Now, little children, that's a phrase that he repeats numerous times in his letters, and it's believed to be a a familiar greeting from an old man to his entire audience. It's It's an affectionate shorthand you all, you all, fathers and young men. Well, that sounds a bit more specific, doesn't it? With the connotation of different age, different stages, the generation gap. But there's nothing in the underlying message to those two groups that suggests that it's code for either spiritual maturity or that it carries different advice for different stages of life. His advice is repeated, it's circular, and it speaks into a general situation rather than the specifics of any subgroup. Tom Wright describes this passage rather well as John taking a long, lingering look at his audience. So what I intend to do with it quite briefly this morning is to look at the three main pieces of advice that John shares with that audience. And I'm going to point us towards moments in John's own gospel, in his gospel this time, not the letters, that help us find Jesus' fingerprints in the advice that John passes on. I hope that as I'm doing it, it'll be clear what I am doing to you. Well, let me begin with the first bit of advice that he gives in this letter, and it's from verses 13 and 14. If you want to follow the passage, it's on page 1225. And he writes in that uh, 13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. 
writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And later in verse 14, he says, Dear children, because you know the Father. So this is about knowing. And I wonder, I wonder if, as John wrote that in his letter, I wonder if he thought about the time the Apostle Philip had asked Jesus to show the Father to him and all the apostles. Jesus had replied at that time, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been along you, amongst you for such a long time? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? John had recorded those precious words in his gospel in chapter 14. You know, and yet... And yet the Gnostics were trying to persuade John's brothers, sis, brothers and sisters in Christ that the supreme being could not possibly have sullied himself by becoming entangled with the flesh and blood of the world in the person of Jesus. That Jesus and the Father, in other words, could not be one. That's why John says what he says. So holding on, to Christian knowledge and of Jesus and the Father as one, now and from the beginning of time, was more than an important message that John was passing on. It was everything. Without Jesus' link to the Father, without the hallmarks of divinity in Jesus, the gospel had no power. And yet, with those hallmarks and that identity, the gospel had both unlimited power and a real urgency. And that message of Jesus and the Father being one is relevant now. You see, when we, you and I, are presented with so many different worldviews, you know, the humanist worldview, believing in celebrating human freedom, progress, and integrity as sufficient in its own merits, the secularist worldview, believing that religion has no place in public discourse, the atheist worldview, believing that no God exists. Incidentally, everyone believes something. When we're presented, you and I, with so many different worldviews, and I could have gone on, as Christians, we look, don't we, to the gospel as our source of authority. And from the gospel, we too know him who is from the beginning and is one with the Father. And we know him in our Gospels and in our relationship with him to a depth that Facebook can't deliver, but his love can. The second bit of advice I want to look at from this letter is John who writes in verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. And I wonder, I wonder if as John wrote those words, he thought about the time that Jesus painted that marvelous picture of himself as the true vine and my father as the gardener. If you remain in me, he said, and I in you, you will bear much fruit, and my words remain in you. Words remain in you. The word of God lives in you. 
And John recorded those words in chapter 15 of his gospel. And that strength that Jesus spoke of was about Christian people becoming intertwined with Jesus and with each other, feeding off the same sun and rain, growing together from the same roots and the same earth. That kind of strength. The strength of being together with him and each other. Bad branches would wither, would be pruned and thrown into the fire. And you know, back in that time, those who claimed superior knowledge, Gnostics, and whose superior anointing were like the bad branches. They weren't in the light, but they were in the darkness. They wouldn't grow, but wither. The Christians that John wrote to, they were the ones in the true light, and they were the ones destined to grow in Christ. It was an important message then, being strong. The Word of God living in you meant bearing fruit, which in turn meant remaining in that vine, intertwined. And it's a relevant message now. Because in order to become or remain strong in faith, we need each other. We live in a world that's become increasingly privatized, not in the corporate sense of the privatization of public services, but in the personal sense. You know, I... We hear all the time people saying things like, you know, what I do or believe is nobody else's business but my own, as long as it's not illegal. Also, people say things like, my faith is a, personally, a, a purely personal matter between my God and myself. And we hear people saying, my only obligation is to myself and my immediate family. These are everyday statements of belief that we hear all the time. And yet, and yet as Christians, we're not only called, but we're required to live differently. To be part of a vine with each other. To live in codependence with each other and with the Lord Jesus Christ. In our sorrows and our hope in our joys, as well as our fears. It's why we're doing 40 days of community later this year together. It's why part of our vision is to be closer followers of Jesus. So that the word of God may live in us and that we are strong. Third and final note from this letter comes in verse 12 where John writes, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And I wonder, I wonder if when John wrote those words, he recalled that moment when the resurrected Jesus walked into the room, the locked room where they were again gathered in Jerusalem, showed them his hands and his side, wounded from the cross. And he said, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. That commission, John recorded 
in what we now know as chapter 20 of his gospel. The resurrection that the Gnostics denied, you see, was the one John had seen with his own eyes. The forgiveness of sins that they refused to acknowledge was the one that he, John, had been commissioned in by the incarnate God to minister. This was so important that the Christians at that time, it was so important that they knew Jesus' resurrection was real, that they were forgiven, that they could grow in the vine, that they could know Jesus and become one with him and the Father too. All these things were made real by Jesus. All these things John knew for himself to be true. He'd either seen them or been told them by the Lord Jesus himself. And it's of prime importance for you and I now to understand. Knowing him, having his word live in us, means that we are without sin on account of him through grace. Our blamelessness before God was hard won. It's what allows us to know him and be in relationship with him, to pray, to seek his help, to say thy kingdom come, to call on his name. So just to conclude, any letter isn't a letter until we open it. It has no influence over us until we read it. It makes no difference until we act on its contents. As you listen to this sermon series for yourselves, there might be a few questions you want to ask yourself. This letter to the Christians at that time, is it for me as well? Is it a letter I can open that's relevant to my life? Am I indeed one of John's little children, one of that great group he addresses? What weight does the eyewitness account of Jesus carry? as I read those words. So is it a letter I want to open and make my own? No one can answer that but yourself. But on Thursday, we will celebrate in Holy Communion here in church. If you're around, you're welcome at 11 o'clock. We'll celebrate the ascension of Jesus to heaven where he reigns as at God the Father's right hand. That day is both the celebration of his power and position and a recognition that we await his empowering by the Spirit at Pentecost. Our empowering by the Spirit. Things were never the same again for John. Jesus' ascension meant a different type of knowing him. It meant he needed to redouble his efforts to stay strong and was given a new power to forgive sins and to heal. For us... Well, we're too the recipients of that transformation. Born not to sin, but to be made pure in him. Born not to stray, but to bind ourselves to him. Born not to estrange ourselves from him, but to know him. He who is from the beginning. Amen.